Welcome to Material, a show all about the Google and Android universe hosted on the Relay FM network. This episode of Material is brought to you by Linode and Curiosity Stream. I'm one of your hosts, UX designer Yasmin Evian, and join me, my wonderful co-host, tech columnist Andy Anako. Hello. And app developer Russell Ivanovich. Uh, hoy hoy. Andy, we're, we're glad you made it back from the Samsung Internet of Things Summit. Uh, thank you for giving us that on on the street coverage you know it was like live coverage right from right straight from the the event i would have been a little bit more excited if we could have done it like actually from wherever i was i I should have if i were smart i would have just used my phone or something to just record street noise and then just laid that in the background i get also i i I hope it was rational i hope it was understandable because i i took a uh they, they don't call it a red eye a train if you if you're if, if it's an overnight train they call it the night owl service from washington Ooh. back to back to boston so it was literally like 10 p.m board the train 6 a.m get off the train like 7 a.m back in the house and then like by eight o'clock record and then sleep for 12 hours so I'm not going to. I, I hope to listen to that show sometime to find out what I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was pretty good. Um, I was great, like listening just what what uh, Samsung is trying to do in the space of IoT and just kind of thinking through these different options, like you mentioned, beyond the smart bulb, but just making like smart cities and all of that. So um, it's 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 happening. But what we really want to know, Andy, is did you come home with any cool Samsung swag? I was disappointed. I I did the only the coolest thing I came home with was a uh, a little bottle in the in the men's room. They had like little like bottles of uh, Samsung branded breath freshener, <laughs> and it was and it wasn't and it wasn't like you know like breath a, a little like thing of breath mist. It was like I imagine that in the '60s, this was the thing that the squares thought was just perfume, but was actually like a little like medicine dropper where you dropped like acid onto your tongue or whatever. Uh, because yeah, I, my my hopes were high because I'm thinking that I, I've been to Samsung events where there were like everybody gets every, the the press material has like a 64 gigabyte uh, um, SD card which all with all the stuff on like okay cool hey right SD card well well that's that's a little bit more expensive than what I should be taking for as, as a pre thing but okay uh, but it was I thought this is, this is politicians you know this these are like this is Washington this is where like you get wined and dined with like eight hundred dollars suits and 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 two thousand dollar bottles of wine but no I got a it was a there was a goodie bag and there was like a little a notebook with a pen and there was a that little bag that the it was okay it was fine i was expecting nothing i was but i did but i did i did get a bottle of a complimentary bottle of water from one of those samsung smart fridges they had one smart, smart samsung smart Ooh, fridge that, was it sparkling water or just regular water like filtered water uh, it was uh, it was see through it was uh, translucent <laughs> <laughs> didn't but, make you sick when you drank it but the but the, the the cool thing about it is that i could actually see live video of the water before i opened the door to get the water. Whoa. We are living in the You can see the through future. the fridge. Exactly. Whoa. It was just like being in a 7-Eleven where you can actually see <laughs> through the door before you open the door and make your selection. We are living in scary, scary futuristic times. I wonder if you could overlay like what you want in the fridge. You're like, here's my shopping list. Here's all the places I could put it on the shelf so that you can visualize exactly where it's going before you, you, know, you put your milk and your cheese and your butter. You're like, I know exactly where this goes. That looks like a good case for augmented reality where it shows you through the door pictures of, oh, my God, there's an entire chocolate cake and who roasted a turkey? And then you open it up and it's like leftover (laughs) kale. 
It's, it's, it's sour cream that you have to eat today because it's about to go bad. So that's, uh, you know, I, I want one of those smart fridges. I was trying to convince my husband into getting one. And he's like, do you, why do you need to see inside your fridge? And I'm like, if I'm at the store, I don't know that I'm out of milk. You know, I don't have to text you to go open the fridge door. You don't even have to get off the couch or anything. Or maybe I'm on the couch and he's out shopping. You know, just go look. Go go tag into uh, Samsung's <laughs> smart fridge and, and get that taken care of. Yeah. But um, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's on board yet. We'll, we'll see later down the road. Uh, there's been some exciting announcements for the Google's New York offices is that black, black girls code is moving into Google's New York offices, well, which is pretty exciting. So black girls code is an for-profit organization and focuses on providing technology education to African-American girls ages 7 to 17. Um, so they're actually going to have them within their office, and I think that's like super, super awesome. And they were, they were saying that the organization hopes that being inside of Google's offices will give its girls deeper access to mentorship and internship opportunities at the search giant, says Black Girls co-founder Kimberly Bryant. So that's, that's pretty exciting and awesome, and I don't know all that is entailed uh, with, with that if like the, how the office spaces, if it's something that they have multiple office spaces where people can kind of take part and be a part and like host inside of Google or if they're separate. I have no, I don't know how it's laid out, but um, I think that's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. I think one thing that surprised me so much when I was at Mountain View is when you are like, okay, where is the Google campus? And you're kind of standing in the middle of the town. You're like, well, this is the Google campus. It's like a, it's like a university. You know, you have maybe the main campus, which is where you think like, oh, this is, this is it, the Google campus with the volleyball and all that stuff. But then there's like so many other different buildings that are just all a part of Google. So um, it's, I don't know how New York is laid out if, you know, they, they have office spaces like that. Yeah, I've I've been to it, and it's a really nice building, like right in the middle of I don't, I don't think I don't think it's called you call it Lower Manhattan, but a really really nice uh, really nice thing. But uh, for like uh, uh, teenagers who are learning how to code, I think that the, one of the nicest uh, inspirational things is that you are walking into a building that has in huge letters fastened to the outside Google. It's not like this is a this is a building, and then if you hit the you hit the number fourteen, you get to the fourteenth floor. I imagine that, like, when you're 12 or 13 years old, it's like, no, oh, I'm going, I'm going to have to do some code at, at, at the Google building. It's, it's. I, I, <laughs> I, and I was curious too as to whether they're just sort of we got we have we have some office space we're not using and we're let we're gonna let you use that. Uh, for instance, when uh, if you bought uh, Google Glass and you had your fitting in New York, it was really like almost an entire like floor that was set up as like a reception area and a and a lounging area and a get a free Coke area. So maybe they have a lot of extra space. Uh, but in, in any way, shape, or form, that is a really good show of support. It, just the fact they're putting out a press release saying that we are materially in some way giving some space and helping out uh, such a good educational foundation is really wonderful. Yeah, it is. Um, it is pretty amazing that they have opened up their doors uh, to do that. And they were saying that hopefully by being involved in like the Google campus is that also they they as Google will be able to, you know, get to know a lot of these uh, kids and stuff that are kind of going into it and get new perspectives. Um, and so because uh, I think the stats are it was a uh, African-Americans still compromise just two percent of company staff. So they're hoping to really grow that and change those, those diversity numbers. So. Uh, I'm excited. So good on you, Google, and congratulations to Black Girls Who Code, because that is, or Black Girls Code, sorry. That's real exciting. 
Yeah, no, that is really exciting. I know having just visited a few campuses myself recently, it, it's quite inspiring to be there. And I, I did meet at the um, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. I met a whole bunch of the scholarship students that were there. So all sort of young kids, you know, 13, 14. I call them kids because I'm old <laughs> enough to do that now. Uh, and you know, I went up to them and said, you know, how, how, how you know, how's things going? I even met one girl who was like nine years old and she like made her own app, her own app, sorry. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. It's quite inspirational to be at a place where this stuff happens. You know, you've got the big tech companies, obviously, like Andy said, Google, the recognizable name, That's that's got to be, you know, an inspiration for, for those kids, hopefully. So the other thing we promised our readers, our readers, our listeners, this episode. Listeners, readers. Our readers of the air. <laughs> a reader, yeah. yeah. Read, it, read it with your ears. Readers, readers of the traffic, the traffic signs that you're passing by, please pay attention. <laughs> we, we told them that we were going to talk about Chromebooks this episode. So I... I did the due diligence thing. I ordered a Chromebook. I had a look at the list of, um, you know, Chromebooks that were going to support Android, you know, Google Play Store apps first. And I saw the Chromebook Pixel. There was the Asus something flip and there was one other, um, you know, laptop on there. And I figured which one's going to get support first. It's probably the Google one. So, you know, it's a little bit more expensive. I'm like, whatever, I'm a developer. I'm going to order that one. Uh, It arrived on Friday, I think. I was very excited by that. And then I found out that the very first Chromebook to get support, official support for, you know, Google Play apps is... The Asus Chromebook Flip. So yeah, cheap one. I, I bet bet on the wrong horse. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's too bad. I wonder if that was tactical though, because that is the least expensive one. I, I I looked at I looked at the same list. I almost went and bought one just because um, the old the one that I the one that I own is like a Samsung that's a couple of years old. Uh, I did have a Chromebook Pixel that I had for like a whole year before uh, before I sent it back. Uh, I liked it. I liked it good enough. I just finally. Yeah, I finally decided that I'm going to wait to see what I will want to own <laughs> come September if I really want to run uh, Android apps on this thing. And I've been keeping an, uh, keeping an eye on it because I so I don't have a Chromebook. And I've mentioned before that the idea of a Chromebook hasn't really been something that's been really gotten my attention. I'm like, I don't see a, a whole lot of uh, value, at least for our, fam- for our family right now, because, you know, I have my, my own uh, MacBook Pro um, and everyone else kind of just uses uh, tablets or their, or their mobile phones to do this. But when I heard that Android apps were coming to Chromebook, I was like, Ooh, like that, that opens up a little bit more apps and more things to do. Um, so I, I've been eyeing and, and like looking at different ones. And I think actually HP just announced a touchscreen, uh, one that is, uh, it says it's an 11 inch G5 and they say it's a stylish laptop. So, you know, you're going to look good in it. I guess, I guess so. They say it's stylish. I mean, I that means you're going to look good, right? No, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you, they announced an inch touchscreen, which they were saying that's going to be really great for Android apps. So you can actually interact with them with, with touchscreen instead of just with the mouse or with the trackpad. Um, and and the price. Get ready for this, everyone. I'm ready. A budget-friendly starting price of $189. It's $189 for a Chromebook. Like, I was like, Should be free. Uh, yes, I will go buy one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Too expensive. <laughs> So I, I, I'm tempted. I'm tempted. I don't know. I'm trying to look here if there's like a, a release date for this or one that's going to come out or whatnot. Um, and I'll have to really compare all the, from all the like different, um, the, not the, the specs and see which one is like really central. Like if this is going to be suited or if it's going to be slow or I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Like it's, it's funny when you're researching Chromebooks because when usually when you're researching like heavy duty laptops, <laughs> you're like, Oh, how much memory does it have? And what's the storage <laughs> on it? And all this stuff, you know? Um, but um, I, I'm, I'm looking at it now, so I, I'm tempted. 
So I have a question for you, Yasmin, and this is a question I've got a lot on Twitter from people when they saw I bought a Chromebook. They're like, would you consider using this as your laptop? And I'm like, as a developer, you know, I can't. You know, Android Studio is not on there. Xcode is definitely not on there. And even some of the ways I like to work, like I like to open Slack and it's its own app. I don't like the whole, you know, one tab per everything approach. But you, you out of all of us, have the, the youngest kid, kids. Like, do you, is that something you consider getting for your daughter, like as her first sort of experience in, like, I know she's already used tablets, but, you know, when it's time to go to something like a laptop, do you think like a Chromebook is an option? Yeah, you know, I've been really thinking about it and the, you know, the tablet, you don't really need a keyboard. A lot of the apps that she plays with are touchscreen. And so a lot of it's uh, very like auditory or she's interacting with some, if it's like a game or even educational app. So there's not really use for her to have a keyboard. And that's really kind of one of the benefits of having a, a Chromebook, right, is the attachment of the keyboard. Um, and I, But I definitely think that later down the road, as she's a little bit older and starts to possibly start to learn, she doesn't know, uh, she knows how to write. She writes letters, like handwritings and stuff, but she... I guess she doesn't know how to type. Maybe, I don't know. When do you, when do you teach kids how to type now? Is that like, <laughs> is that something we have to consider? Uh, but I think definitely for getting an entry level like laptop or something when she's ready to get into that, I definitely am considering a Chromebook. I'm actually even just considering to having one in the house just as uh, something that you have like on the table, like in the, in the living room or something that you can just grab and go. Um, I don't know what's for the battery life. Have you have, have you guys had any like insight with battery life? Like, is it, is it like a tablet where you can just leave it out and well, the updated tablets, we're not talking about the old tablets, <laughs> updated tablets it, where you can just kind of leave it out and, and it's fine. Oh, it, it definitely is. In my limited experience, the, the, the coolest thing about a Chromebook is you don't need to set up an account on there. Uh, you just log in with your Google account. And now you're on that particular laptop. So you, you get everyone's faces on the main screen. And I've played with just when you're finishing it, you close it. And at the moment, it says 10 hours left. And I haven't charged it, you know, since I bought it. And I've probably used it for two hours. So it, it seems pretty good. So does your child then have to have a Google account? Ah, that is a good question. I would assume so. I mean, both my kids do just because, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of parent. I don't know if there's some limitation that they're meant to be 13 or something, but they, they both have their own Google accounts. Yeah, that, that is going to be a problem. I know that in the recent past, uh, certain parents and school systems that have standardized on Chromebooks have complained that uh, our kids, to, because all the educational software they're using that the school system uses is based on uh, Google Docs and Google's educational packages, our kids need to have Google accounts of some sort. So you're basically exposing our kids to data collection from Google from age four or five on. And Google has responded not with uh, necessarily a specific plan, but okay, we hear you. We're putting together something specific so that if kids want to have a full Google account, they can have it, but we'll give them sort of a limited uh, <laughs> limited blinders on sort of version so people can use it. Uh, but yeah, I've had the exact same experience as, as Russell. It's like you soon come to accept it as just another laptop. And I'm really curious to see how people react to Chromebooks. I think that there are a lot of people that maybe they have like a $700 laptop because – all they because that's all that's available when in reality if their phone had a big screen and a keyboard and the ability to have overlapping windows i think they'd be very happy with just the uh, just the phone apps they have and so literally you have a 189 dollar machine that has no capabilities except for being able to run <laughs> run ex essentially phone apps and uh, web browser apps uh, but the the only thing that's going to be uh, weird in that regard is that uh, I like the I like the Chromebook Pixel. It is 
truly a $1,300 premium notebook that doesn't run any software. <laughs> but but it means that the screen is fantastic. The 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 the, the keyboard is really great to, to work with. The touchpad are both all things I can work with all day long. The problem when I sometimes get some of these less expensive Chromebooks is that I can definitely see taking it to the coffee shop for an hour or two, but for an entire workday session by the end of the day, maybe it's not quite so comfortable. And most of all, I'm wondering if this keyboard, for instance, is going to hold up for a whole year or a whole two years. Uh, I've yet to, I've almost never put away a, a, a MacBook after I've upgraded to a new one where the keyboard isn't still working fine, the screen isn't working fine, the, the trackpad isn't working fine. If, if it has a problem, it's usually because I drop something liquid into it, not because it was <laughs> substandard components they're trying to hit a sub $200 price point. Yeah, and I want to I want to speak into um, you know we we kind of drive into the the Chromebook subject of education, and you guys kind of asked me if I would get this you know for my daughter. Um, but we actually had one of our listeners write in who is a part of a district that does what do they call it the one to one student device uh, world, where they actually provide all the district provides all of the students with the Chromebook. Um, and so we were having a discussion about like oh what does this mean with the Android apps coming to Chromebook? And I was really really curious because. Um, before I got into tech, like when I was considering, hey, what do I want to be when I grow up? Um, one of the things is I actually wanted to go into education. Um, but the main reason for me wanting to do that is because I really wanted to make education like really interactive and having media and really like engaging um, and not so much just someone kind of lecturing you. And so like the idea of bringing tech and stuff is something that's really, really exciting to me, in including that my um, sister is, you know, used to be an elementary school teacher and is now a librarian. So like we're kind of education. Kind of, I don't know if it's I guess it's our thing. It's our thing, I guess. But um, I was t you know, talking to one of our listeners and I asked him like, hey, what are the benefits and drawbacks of this? Um, and I just kind of want to read this, this section from the benefits. And he was saying that students are motivated and love to use their device. If the lesson has to do with anything with opening their Chromebook, there is an unconditional buy-in that doesn't appear with traditional delivery. In addition, I believe soundly and share the learning between students and teachers. If there is a tech tool, students will share it with each other regardless of social, economic, class, race, or academic level. The next thing I see is the entire room has grown. So I, I'm thinking about this and... You know, you can't even go apply for a job at, um, I know Target has like the computers there where you actually have to go and apply a job. Um, I don't know if, you know, those other jobs that you would, you know, usually start if in, in going and to apply a job, I think all of them mostly have some form of technology that you have to interact with. Like it's no longer, here's my resume, please, uh, please hire me or whatever, you know, you don't go up or fill out a form. It's usually all online. And you really think about people that haven't had the capabilities of being around technology. And I know a lot of times, like a lot of people do, but some people just never had a laptop kind of growing up. What being able and providing this for the students so everyone can use all these tools and it's not only the the privileged few who have access to it like I'm just saying about like that is amazing of the breaking that barrier um, between that and just setting up people to succeed because so many of the jobs now even ones that are not necessarily in tech involve some form of computer work like it, computers involved yeah and I, I don't think people really appreciate how important and how dangerous the digital divide can be uh, if you go and hang out at libraries, you will find out that the public access terminals are being used by they're, – they're in regular use. And you think, okay, these people who are just – they've got their, their, their wife or their, their husband is, is out somewhere and uh, they've got a couple hours to kill. So they're just uh, – they're on, they're on TMZ.com. No, what they're doing is they're on job, uh, job hunt sites. 
and they are applying for jobs online, and they were looking for information about government assistance programs. Uh, and a lot of this stuff, you really can't do it on paper anymore. You really need access to a computer. So these are lifeline sort of things. Uh, and for a lot of people, $189 is still going to be a problem. And even just having some sort of internet access at home is going to be a problem. But at least we're going to at least this is one thing that's going to take some steps. Just no one should ever ever forget that for some people, just having some sort of access is such a struggle, but it's never been uh, more important than it is today. I think one other valuable thing is that um, by allow having technology in there, I think they're also educating them on like technology 101 or like even Facebook 101, social media 101. <laughs> you know, I, I have a niece who's a teenager and I'm like, hey, you know, I, you know, I gosh, I'm have to be that aunt to be like, you do realize, you know, you have to be careful everything that you post, even if it's, she's not a bad kid, you know, but like just stuff that when you're with your friends or whatever, like this could eventually come back to haunt you. Or if you're applying for a job, someone Googles you, you know, and finds your Facebook account and whatever is shown on there. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that as teenagers, we don't even, didn't even consider because it's like we're teenagers, right? We're not, we're not uh, going into that. So by the fact that they're actually incorporating this into education and being like, hey, this is kind of the reality of what it is technology. Because I think, I don't know if you guys were like me, but so much of learning technology and learning how to type fast was like getting on on AOL chat rooms. Come on, AIM, oh, yeah. AOL instant message. No, ICQ messenger. <laughs> yep, I, I, my, my, t my teachers were, I'm, I'm older than, than either of you and I'm older than almost our listeners, I think. But it's like my teachers were like, almost afraid of me seeing how fast I could type like but you, how long were you taking typing classes I've never taken a typing class I've just I've just been trying to like get basic programs working and that sort of thing um yeah it's there's there's so much I like about it and we, we gosh we could really tail into another 45 minutes on this but because so, so, so much of this is just uh, simple, basic stuff, not not just access, but I like the fact that a Chromebook is by nature a classless uh, object. It's not like, oh, you have, oh, God, oh God poor poor Priscilla. Her, she only has the $189 Chromebook. You know, my family, we're doing really well. We could afford the $229 one. It's, it's not about, there's no luxury brand of, of Chromebook, or at least no, no, no one that anyone is buying. The only one's being made by, by, uh, by Google. And then there's this simple thing where, have you ever seen, if you go into the Apple store, it is so cool when you see a kid uh, who has clearly this isn't the family iPad that that she has to share with people. Sometimes you'll see a kid come in and they've got a, they've got their own stickers on it. They've got their own like names written on it in magic marker, just just like the just like the 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 name Andy on the on the on the sole of uh, of, of the toys is to, the boots on uh, in Toy Story. There's a when someone has a Chrome a laptop top that is theirs, meaning every they can use it whenever they want. They don't have to share it, and also it's a personal item. Uh, it becomes uh, they get a real emotional connection to it because it really does become this is part of it's like my eyeglasses it's like my favorite pair of sneakers it's not community property this is part of how I how, how I contact myself into the world and how I express myself into the world it really is powerful stuff yeah I mean it definitely is I'll never forget as a kid my dad brought home one of the first um, IBM XT computers you know because he was a drafts person and he had to do industrial design on there and I got to play with it when he wasn't using it and that has really stuck with me for life and I really love the fact that now my kids they have their own laptops and they do exactly what you're talking about Andy they every single sticker you know that I find or I get from someone at a conference they're like can I have your sticker can I have a sticker <laughs> and they you know that they they obsess about you know which part of the the top of their laptop are they going to stick this to and when they run out of space on the top 
then they start sticking to the trackpad area as well. And I'm like, what are you doing? But it's it's really cool to see them have this, you know, connection with technology. They're like, this is my view into everything. Like if I ever want to look up something for school, this is where I go. If I want to, you know, their kids, I like to game. If I want to game, like this is where I go. If I just want to interact with, you know, other people my age, this is where I go. It's It's really cool to see them have that, you know, physical connection to a laptop. And we got them, you know, Possibly the cheapest, you know, laptops you could possibly buy in the, the Windows world. I think they were like probably two hundred and fifty, you know, US dollars. So these are not great laptops. Like I'm watching them play some of these games at, you know, two frames per second and then it's into mine. They're like, I've had my own laptop. You're like, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so I mean, speaking of the whole, you know, two frames per second Chromebook thing, what what do we think about the overall concept of Android apps on, on Chromebook? Like how much of a difference is it gonna make, if at all? Yes. we're both eager to eager to to be happy does that say anything no (laughs) no i'm I'm curious on andy's uh thoughts on this but i i'm so excited because you know talking about the education effects of like what this means for people in education um and what like that are already using chromebooks like this just opens up the world to so many more apps that can be built that for me is really really exciting and just opens up it makes the Chromebook more valuable, right? Because it's like before you were really just attached to whatever was on your browser and then they have like their their own built-in system, but it's like there wasn't a whole lot there. Um, so I am super excited. One thing though that is a, someone actually a listener reached out and asked us a question was, what are they going to do with uh, the Android apps being installed on the hard drive? Are are they going to be able to be installed on the SD card? Because Chromebooks, the whole thing about them is that they're kind of these cloud-connected Chromebooks that you don't have to have a whole lot of storage. So a lot of them even ship with like 16 gigabytes of of hard drive space. And then I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. Are they going to are they going to be or allow them to storage on the SD card? Um, I reached out to some people that have access to the Android apps on Chromebook, and they said at the moment they didn't see an option to move to SD card. But I'm thinking that this is coming soon because there was like a Google Plus post of um, I think it was one of the developers at Google sharing showing a screen of like the storage devices, like handling storage on your Chromebook. So I think that this potentially is coming. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it is because if they don't, then it's really limiting. But I, one of the things that I was actually considering a lot was instant apps, Android instant apps. If you have the Android instant apps available on the Chromebook, this could pretty much get rid of the whole um I don't. Ha- I only have 16 gigs of storage on my device thing because then you don't actually have to download the entire app. You only download what you're using at that moment, and then there you go. You're able to use the app, but you don't have to actually store it on your device. Yeah, I I, th- I think that uh, that's another reason I think for holding off until uh, at least the end of the year to buy a new Chromebook. Uh, I, once the HP and Samsung and the rest start making devices that are that have. Android on Chromebook on Chrome OS in mind, that's when you're going to start to see, gee, why do I why did I spend twelve hundred dollars on a premium laptop last year? Uh, I, I don't see a big problem with storage uh, because if you think of it, part of the problem is you have to start stop thinking about this as a traditional laptop and start thinking of it as more like a phone with a really big screen and a really good keyboard. Uh, we got uh, my phone has thirty two gigs. I wish I had sixty four, but even sixty four gigs that's really attainable if. Uh, 
if I had a $200 Chromebook that had an SD card slot that could work with the SD slot as well as it works with anything else, or even better, a USB 3.0, uh, standard USB 3.0 slot that I could then take one of these little like thumbnail sized, uh, like low profile uh, USB 3 drives and put 128 gigs of storage on there. For what I think I would use a Chromebook for, I think that would be more than adequate. Uh, the amount of uh, application RAM, again, I get by just fine with two gigs. Uh, that's more than adequate. It really is, uh, it doesn't require a whole lot to make me happy when you're just running Android apps. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I obviously, as you can probably tell by my voice, I'm really excited about this. I, I, I'm, what I, I love these, when there's a, a developer conference keynote, what I want to hear most of all is a new idea or a new feature that's coming that totally changes the gravity of this planet a little bit. And I think this is that sort of thing where suddenly we don't have to necessarily think, am I going to have a desktop or am I going to have a notebook? And what do I use my phone for? Uh, there, are, I think there are a lot of people that in the next, not maybe not in 2016, but the next time they're in a position where, uh, gosh, my $1,000 notebook is getting long in the tooth or it's, okay, damn, I bought my, I just dropped a, a Dr. Pepper in the keyboard again. Okay, yes, I did draw, drop a Dr. Pepper into my $2,000 MacBook Pro last year. I'm still shaming myself <laughs> for it. Uh, but when when you have that, you're starting to think, well, instead of just going out and buying a, once again, going out with $1,000 to spend on a new Windows notebook or $1,500 to spend on a new MacBook Air, like I always do every couple of years, why don't I take a look at what's changed in the past four years? And you might think, that, for instance, as a, as a Mac user, you might think, you know what, I think that my needs will be better suited by simply spending, a instead of $1,500 on a, a MacBook, I should spend $1,000 on a really good Mac Mini, and then $300 or $400 on a really good Chromebook, and I think both of those will actually address my needs really, really well. A, a, a $300 Chromebook, as Russell was saying, uh, I've had the exact same experience with, uh, with battery life, since it's... it's since it has to lift so little, so few heavy things, it really can give you the same like eight to ten hours that I get on this uh, really nice MacBook that I have. Uh, that I at the crack of dawn uh, at a hotel in L.A. I walked to an Apple store to buy and spend two thousand dollars on after I woke up and realized what I'd done with that Dr Pepper. Uh, so it's it's it really does change the way uh, you you look at computing. It, it makes you want to say what's more, what's more practical today. Why am I still using uh, buying computers the same way I've been buying them for the past ten years? Because we've got a new president and everything. So so Russell, I have a question for you because you know I I used to do or you know sometimes still do a lot of uh, like web design and so responsive design has kind of always been and the thought. In the back of our minds as designers, we're thinking about, we're like thinking about the desktop version and you, it's going to look differently from the tablet and even the mobile version. It's going to, there's going to be different breakpoints and it's going to break and start looking differently to better suit the device that you're on. Um, and the cool thing about material design is that they have this responsive UI and responsive layouts in material design. And so they, it's very built very much the way that web designers have been thinking about uh, building interfaces like that because you have the breakpoints. It's like, well, here's the large and the medium, and this is how it breaks, and this is how it maybe restructures itself. So maybe in a mobile format, it's going to look better as a list, but uh, when you expand it to a desktop, it's going to look better in a grid layout. So just kind of thinking through all those uh, different scenarios, um, which got, has me really exciting because it's kind of a built into, and it's kind of like, ooh, we can start creating, you know, like these dynamic layouts that change depending on the screen size. So I want to get uh, your feedback, Russell, on what, it, okay, so you're building on desktop, so there's going to be an extra level of effort even beyond 
maybe a, a tablet view because it's going to be a little bit wider or it's going to look a little bit different. So I kind of want to hear from your perspective, what is the return on investment on that? Like I think by a lot of people don't make their iPad apps or their Android apps like <laughs> iPad apps. No, you caught me. I caught myself on that <laughs> one. Uh, I caught, <laughs> they don't make their Android apps look good for tablets. Like, I mean, a lot of the things that Android developers have already had to do is pees many screen sizes. So usually it looks fine, but it's not completely designed for a tablet. But now that you can get apps to run on Chromebook, then it kind of it gives you a more incentive to do that. But I'm curious from your perspective. So yes, I mean, this is, this is an excellent question. This is a typical question you get at a conference where the question is five minutes long and the person just kind of nods their head as like the, the other person's asking the question. And I'm going to do the really cool news presenter thing, Yasmin. I'm going to give you the answer to your question on the other side of this ad break. Ooh. Why? You can't do that. First you ever on Material all, Podcast. All, you mean that all along we've been reading an ad? Wow. How long is this ad break going to go? That's, it's, like, it's great. That's like Monty Python where they, they start in the middle of the episode and then they put the – oh, my God. We're being so innovative. Hell are we no, innovative. The cool thing about this – is I'm going to read the ad as well. So you as the listener are not going to know like when to stop skipping because you're listening for the change of voices, but oh, there no. will be no change of voice. Oh. So our first you're sponsor answer for this, it. That's right. And our first sponsor for this week is Linode, and this episode is brought to you by them. They're a combination of high-performance SSD Linux servers spread across eight data centers around the world, which makes them a fantastic solution for your server infrastructure. You can get a server up and running literally in under a minute and plans start at just $10 a month. And, you know, when you go in there, you'll be able to choose, okay, I want this much RAM, I want this much disk, I want this particular, you know, Linux distro to run on here. You press the button and boom, your server, get, uh, your server gets booted. You can log in and, you know, configure it how you want. So you're thinking, well, what do I do? I have a server in the cloud. What kind of things can I do with it? You can run your own private Git server. Uh, you can host large databases. You can run your own mail server. Uh, you can run, you know, powerful sort of applications like we do for things like Pocket Casts and Pocket Weather and so much more. You've basically got this, you know, computer in the cloud that you can do whatever you want with and it's connected to a 40 gigabit network. So, you know, you've got the networking sorted. Like I said, SSD storage, so super fast uh, disk access and plenty of power, you know, industry-leading CPU. So as a listener to this show, you want to go to linode.com, L-I-N-O-D-E.com slash material and you'll not only be supporting us but you'll get $20 towards your first plan. And that all comes with a seven-day money-back guarantee. So there's literally nothing to lose here. Again, go to linode.com slash material uh, to learn more and sign up and take advantage of that $20 credit. Or, you know, if you're so excited, you heard me do this ad read, and you're like, I'm already there, you can use the promo code material20 at checkout. So we want to thank Linode so much for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. <laughs> now, previously, listeners, on the other side of the ad break, you did hear Yasmin ask a question about, you know, what does it mean for responsive apps and... What does it mean when Android apps start to go to desktop size screens? Uh, I think it's a few things, Yasmin. Like you say, material design itself, it, it doesn't have support for that per se, but it does have guidelines for you know how apps should expand and resize and that sort of thing. So it's not like it's, it's – I don't want to say it's absolutely painless for developers. Like there's no magic button that we as developers can push and be like, make this resizable everywhere. It's kind of a bit like web development, but with – with slightly more structure and sort of better tools behind it. So in the web development world, um, you know, people write all these different things for like when it gets beyond this pixel range, you know, do this or as it stretches, you know, stretch this bit but not that bit. And that's really hard thing to do on the web, you know, to get it right and to to get that working well across, you know, all sorts of different window sizes that people can resize to. I'd say that's harder than, than working on an Android app. But 
at the same time, doing that in the Android world is not easy because not only do you have to get all the layouts right and you have to get all the sizes right and you have to get all the touch targets, you know, to be the right size. And you also can't assume, like, does does the user, you know, have a mouse? Do they, can you make tiny little touch targets or do they have a finger? You have to assume, yeah, they probably have a finger. That's that's the big thing we're going to aim for. And then the, the hardest part of all that is now you have to sit down and you go, okay, if my app gets resized to this particular window size, what does that actually mean, like, for my app? Do we... Do you do the the cheat way and do you put padding on either side or do you add more content or, you know, what makes sense in that particular context? And I think this is where it starts to get a little bit difficult for us as developers because we've always assumed that the device we're running on, you're holding, you know, in one or two hands, whether it be a tablet or a phone, it's there, it's physically in front of you, you're physically interacting with it, you're you're holding onto it, you know, presumably unless you've got it in a, you know, something else that's holding it for you. And then when you go to the laptop, form factor suddenly it's it's on your lap or it's on a desk there's a keyboard in front of it which means a whole you know suite of other things in terms of keyboard shortcuts and things so i guess the very long answer to your very long question is that it's it's complicated (laughs) (laughs) you know android has all the support for that stuff the tools are all there but it's not a magic push a button and all your apps are going to look amazing like there there will be a lot of changes required by developers if they really want their you know their apps to shine on on chrome os yeah. And is it a problem for you developers? Because I think there are a lot of developers that they really only thought of people using their app on a phone, standing up, waiting for a bus, for instance. Uh, like, for instance, uh, if there's a if if one were to use a very popular podcast listening app, uh, let's say that there were one that were available <laughs> and deployed. I'm not going to make you do edits, so don't worry. <laughs> If there were one that were uh, if uh, to, to choose one at random that I won't name that is available uh, for phones, of course, but also there is a web implementation of it. It's very obvious that the uh, there was a consideration as to how should this look. This should look completely different in a if people are sitting and using this in a web browser. So how much work is it going to be to if if you're not satisfied with saying I don't want this to just look like a phone stretched out interface. Does that mean? Does that sort of put an obligation on you to figure out how are people going to use my little uh, put makeup on someone's face photo editor in a laptop sort of setting versus on a phone sort of setting? How much extra thought space has to go into that? Yeah, I think it's definitely more. And I know some people will say, "Well, we already have tablets. You know, we've got the Nexus Nine, the Nexus Ten, you know, various other tablets." But I still feel like you know, even this, even though the screen's only slightly bigger, you know, some of these Chromebooks are, are twelve and thirteen and fourteen inches. Like that's not a huge amount bigger than a ten-inch tablet, but it it kind of is in a way as a developer, and especially when you consider, like you say, Andy, the way people are going to be using it. So they could be sitting at a desk, they could be in an office, they could be on a train. There's there's all sorts of places that you might you know use a laptop that you necessarily wouldn't use your phone, and you're probably after a longer interaction as well. That chances are they'll leave your app up and running maybe like off to the side or something while they're doing something else which is not common on the phone like generally you know let's say you made a a popular podcasting application what you expect is your users will say i want to listen to this maybe i want to listen to this next and then they'll close your app because there's no reason to to stay there you know they've got a twitter to browse or a facebook to read or you know news to catch up on and so something else like a game to play or something or they'll put you away and into their pocket but now on the desktop like you're just there permanently on the screen and it's like do you need to present them with more information? Do you need to make it more visually interesting? Do you need to do something different uh, in that case? And I think it's very early days. Like as developers, 
we've only ever seen this in sort of preview releases and things. So we're probably not going to know until, you know, this has been out for a few months. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing um, if if people start uh, kind of designing for the Chromebook and seeing how that takes shape. And it would be very interesting to see if a, maybe a certain podcasting app decided to uh, create a Chromebook edition of their app or if they, you know, they've realized maybe we, we've already kind of focused our efforts on the web, go get the web app. I don't know. Who knows? And I don't know who I could be talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other hard fit is, is let's say you as a developer have made a desktop app or a web app and now the user can run the phone app. Like, do you continue to sell both? How do you, how do you differentiate those two? How do you say, no, no, we designed this one for a web browser, but this one is for a phone, but you can run the phone one on, oh, oh no, you can run it in your web browser. Like I, it, it starts, I got an answer for you. That does start to get a little bit confusing. Oh, you do? Uh, let me just learning. get a pen and paper out. Machine learning. Just kidding. <laughs> Well, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm, I don't know if I really do have an answer for you, Russell, but maybe, maybe if you started playing with Project Blocks, maybe that would give you some insight. Uh, Project Blocks is a program that uh, Google actually just announced. They, it is a modular way. It's a, so it's a modular system for tangible programming made up of electronic boards and programmable pucks, which enable you to send instructions to devices when connected together. So they actually released this really, really uh, cool, tangible, like a coding interactive device where you can. They have like different elements, and it is. It's almost like. Um, you know, Project uh, Tango, where, sorry, Project R, now I'm getting them all confused. Aura. Project R, the one where you're snipping, Aura. Aura, where you're, you know, you're snapping stuff together and you're kind of building it. Um, but they're really focusing this on kids because it, they were saying that kids naturally play and learn by using their hands and building off stuff and doing things together. So they really wanted to incorporate the idea of programming um, into a way that kids could kind of work together and, and think collaboratively and think like, hmm, how can I solve for this problem or what am I trying to do? So I think it's pretty exciting. And I don't know, Russell, maybe, Maybe you could use Project Blocks uh, to to uh, get together with your team and maybe come up with a solution. I don't know if that's going to help you, <laughs> but I, I was I was really excited when I heard, uh, saw this announcement and I signed up to like get information. So anyone that is working on the Project Blocks team, if uh, you see my name Yasmin Avian, you know pop up on there and you're like, hey, we got one of these things we can send out. I have a child that Yasmin. fits this. How could you? I, hey, I have no shame. I have no shame. I will ask <laughs> Google for stuff. I have a child that fits this criteria of who you're looking for, and we can build together. And look, you're even going to get press because, look, I'm on a podcast. So, boom. Done. <laughs> there is no I, I higher for press you. than there a podcast. No, of, of, of course, if you're mean-spirited, you could realize that, gee, Yasmin is in uh, Arizona uh, Andy is in New England and Russell is in Australia. So we'll we'll send the material podcast a full set. Russell will get the input blocks. Yasmin will get the computational <laughs> blocks. Andy will get the output blocks. And they can fight amongst themselves about who gets to borrow which. I, I have to say the infrastructure to this is is really cool. So you've got these things called pucks, which sit on the top. So you can have like switches, like on-off switches, little dials, little arrows that point in certain directions. Those clip onto a thing called a baseboard. And the baseboard's job is just to read, okay, what is the little puck on top doing and sort of send that on. And then you plug a whole bunch of these pucks and baseboards into something called a brain board. And that's the thing that actually controls it all. So it can see exactly what the configuration of all these things are that you've laid out. And it can transmit that off to something else, you know, like a computer or a toy or something else like that. And I, I found this concept 
you know, really fascinating. As someone who used to wire up those, you know, those electrical tool sets that you'd get from like Radio Shack or whatever, you're like, plug this oh, wire yeah. into this wire and eventually, you know, you have a radio. This this is like a million times cooler than, you know, making yeah. your own radio. Just the ability to screw around with that stuff as opposed to I need to have a methodical plan. I need, what, 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 what library do I have to include before I can print something to the screen? Uh, and digging a little bit deeper uh, and thinking a little bit more broadly, it's such a great way to learn coding because it makes it into a community problem solving sort of thing you have these blocks that are on the table that all the kids are that this team of three or four kids are working around uh, and let's solve this problem together as opposed to the way i learned programming which is holy crap it's 3 a.m and i have to be up for school in three hours i've been i've been, I've been writing machine code all alone in my room for four or five hours uh, <laughs> and it also it's it's there's no uh you don't have to there's uh, every single programming language that i've used has some sort of connection into using the English language, even if it's like C++ and it's really, really bad English language. So we're not just talking about this is a system that could be in every single school across the world, but there are some kids who have problems with language, even if they English is their primary language. So a dyslexic child will have will be on exactly the same footing as any child who does not have dyslexia uh, in this course program. So it means that they'll be at the same table learning the same thing at the same speed. Uh, such a really, really cool idea. Oh, yeah. It is. You brought up so many good points. It's like it just removes that entire barrier already. You don't have to know the English language or know exactly even how to read or write to kind of uh, interact and, and play with these things because they're essentially toys that you're tinkering with and learning with. So I am all I'm all up for that again. Project Blocks yeah, team. <laughs> not only that, but <laughs> Yasmin gets one more plug in there. Hey, Project Blocks team. I think Yasmin wants some project blocks. <laughs> you should send her some project blocks. I, I think the other cool thing is like, I, I don't know about your daughter Yasmin, but my kids, they, they weren't child prodigies. They couldn't read or write at like age three and four, but they could probably still, you know, figure out something like this because it's physically interacting with something. You don't need to le learn the it's symbols like Lego or anything on like that. Yeah, it's like playing with yeah, Lego or Duplo or whatever. You can click these things together and, and something can happen. And that's, that's pretty cool to see that instant feedback as well because that's, one thing I missed in my early programming days, you type for a long time and then you press a button and the compiler would be like, ma, not, not having any of that. Whereas this is like instant, you know, click, 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 push a button, something happens. Like that whole instant <laughs> feedback loop just accelerates the learning process, well, I think. You've just pointed out a weakness of this. How, where else are kids going to learn how to curse if they're not learning how to develop <laughs> software? <laughs> I, what, oh, what, I'm what, sure what, there what, will be. One of my friends had. To, I, 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 I have to share this because it's I, eight, 80 years later, it's still one of my primary memories of like computer development. So I'm writing, I'm writing a friend of mine uh, who is also like a, a assembly language developer on Apple II's when I was like a, a junior high or high school. Uh, for the first time, like I'm at his house and we're in his room and we're, like working on something together, and he's typing, typing, typing even faster than I am, and he was just had such dexterity with his hostility towards things not working and not understanding why it's working. Type, 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 and then you would see his right hand turn up. Just not not even flip the bird like in an angry way, but just simply now is the time where I turn my, my my hand palm up, extend my middle finger, put it back down, and keep on typing <laughs> because of because of an error that had come up that he's trying to figure out. And I'm like, my goodness, this person is fast. I, I would have to stop and like shout and use both my hands to be excuse my anger. <laughs> we we do have a a bit like that in the shifty jelly office. It'll be quiet. 
you know, for maybe, I don't know, four hours out of an eight-hour day and the rest will just be, you know, filled with with curse words and other things as things stop working or something's not doing what it's meant to do and people will just like, and they'll get up like off their off their chair and just like go for a walk. So, yeah, if I, I do feel like the kids are missing out on, on something. So Project Blocks team, if you want to inject a few bugs into these things as well, then maybe maybe that's like a growing process. <laughs> hey, it's part of know? the it's part of the problem solving process, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, but one together thing exactly that, the way it's meant to go. Why is it not working? But you know, one thing that's not going to upset you, it's going to be Curiosity Stream because this episode of Material is brought to you by Curiosity Stream. Curiosity Stream is the world's first ad-free nonfiction streaming service founded by John Hendricks, the founder of Discovery Communication. It features over a thousand titles and over 600 hours of content available in 196 countries worldwide. So wherever you are, you can access it. And and then it's also available on Roku, Android, iOS, Chromecast, Amazon Fire TV. And if I read the entire list, it would just go on and on. Regardless of where what technology you use to get it on your TV, you're going to have access to it. Curiosity Stream is great like that. And they launched over 50 hours of 4K content. So if you have a 4K TV, this is the place to get it. They have, in addition to documentaries, they also have interviews and lectures, including uh, Stephen Hawking's Universe, a series where Stephen Hawking traces the history of astronomical theories and technology, and they have a whole other things like the human face of big data, so, and the road to singularity. So if you are interested in any of these topics, definitely go check them out. Monthly and annual pans available start at just $2.99 per month, which is less than a cup of coffee or the cost of one title on competing on-demand platforms. Check out curiositystream.com forward slash RelayFM and use promo code RelayFM during sign up to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series completely free for the first 60 days. That's two entire months free of one of the largest 4K libraries around. Just go to curiositystream.com forward slash RelayFM and use offer code RelayFM at sign up. Thank you so much, CuriosityStream, for sponsoring this show and all of RelayFM. Lovely. Well, there's a, a bunch of uh, news stories. Let, let's let's say that the uh, the breaks the, the the EU story with Great Britain sort of it, it dominated the news coverage, and our own little corner of it was. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for anybody in the UK or the EU who is directly affected by this. In the US, we're mostly affected by uh, all these things. I I will say that I was there's some things that I've been meaning to buy that they're from British sellers. And I'm just saying, wait a minute, that price just went down Ooh. $80 with the devaluation of the Too power obligation. I, I, was, I wasn't even joking. I'm, say, I'm saying that I'm not even joking. I'm, I'm very, uh, but uh, I'm saying that uh, uh, one of the things that's been pointed out is, oh, look, look at all of the, all the British people who, fi- who finally decided after the vote was over and they found out that, that uh, they voted to, to leave, the vote did Google searches on what does it, what does the EU do for the British, and what does it mean when the when the when England leaves the uh, the EU? Uh, and a lot of things. Well, that means that people the people who voted for this were all ignorant. Uh, and there are a couple of nice pieces. Danny Page wrote this really nice piece on Medium that tried to explain. Don't think that people are stupid because uh, news news outlets decided to say here's how much the search terms on this on this topic spiked after this event uh, because uh, obviously if you know how uh, this service works uh, you can go to Google Trends and do find out how uh, what's the rate at which uh, people are searching for a certain term it'll show you a graph over time and a spike and you can overlay that on other uh, searches but of course that's just a relative uh, graph so if he's making the point that if uh, it's true that uh, eight uh, eight times or eight 
times or 10 times as many people had searched, that can mean as as few as, say, 800 people, 800 more people search for this term in a country that has significantly more than 800 people in it. Uh, and so it could be just a, it's a spike on a graph, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, millions and millions of people were, were hunting for this. It really does it also doesn't give you any data as to who were who were searching for this uh was it people who uh, who had actually voted against it but now really want to ha now that this is materially going to affect their lives need to be a little bit more active in finding out what's going to happen uh is it people who are what, what what's the demographic of it what's the it's it's a useless statistic and it really puts i think uh, it warns people to not judge based on these news items and i think it actually also puts journalists on notice to don't just make up bogus stories based on a statistic that doesn't really mean anything uh, he actually uh, i don't think it was i don't know if it was danny or someone who was responding to this uh uh, suggested something that would put any sort of these stories in context, which is to uh, do that do that search yourself, but also do a search for like what temperature, what's the safe temperature for cooking pork, <laughs> so you can basically see <laughs> how many people are searching for, or, or what's when's the next uh, when is the next uh, 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 what, what, I'm t this is how old I am. I'm trying to think of a <laughs> I'm trying to think of a name of a uh, of a touring performer who would be very very popular and looking for a search and the first two i thought of are dead i'm like what what's the next amy winehouse <laughs> oh wait no uh how about uh, taylor date no that's from the 1990s andy but basically betos andy the betos when are the betos doing the, <sighs> the comeback tour dang it so i'm still upset about that um <laughs> sorry yeah you can you can edit this if it's a little bit too fumbly but the the basic idea is that if you if you compare this to searches for something that is kind of universal like when is a when is adele's next tour happening uh, you can actually see oh well actually <laughs> compared to something that uh, a popular singer people looking for tickets to that actually a very very small fraction of people are actually interested in this issue so it's 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 uh, you can always live uh, through statistics the great thing about the modern age is that you can lie through st statistics and get free graphs to, uh, to append to your article <laughs> not only that but my favorite kind of graph is where you don't label the y-axis you're like yeah look at it it's a thousand percent increase over yesterday and you're like yesterday there was one person today there's <laughs> a thousand but like five hundred thousand people like search for something else i love the um, the one graph that you know he selected here where like the famous search term is what is the EU and it's a huge massive spike you're like whoa these these British people they don't know what they're talking about and then you overlay some things like you're saying Andy like Game of Thrones or Euro 2016 which is huge like you know all over Britain at the moment and those search terms absolutely dwarf like any searches of the EU it just becomes like a little tiny like one millimeter like bump on the graph and that that gives you some perspective in fact I think someone actually figured out that at the peak of it, it was a thousand people, you know, searching for that term versus like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people like searching for some of these other terms, like, you know, popular TV shows or, or football scores. So yeah, like trends, trends are, is a cool tool. It's cool to go in there and like use it and see, Oh, this is trending over time. And Oh, this came back, you know, 50 years after, you know, it was popular, but it's also good to put it in perspective, you know, put a few other search terms in there, see how relatively, you know, popular they are. And I know that might kill your news story. I'm so sorry, you know, journalists of the world, but, you know, it does, it does give you some context to it all. Maybe they can all start searching for a material podcast and uh, <laughs> let's, let's see if we see a spike. I don't know. Yeah, if, you live know in the, if you live in the UK and you're anywhere near a computer or a phone right now, we just want you to search for what is material podcast. 
You can do it, listeners. Although it is well known that you don't have to search for material podcast. If you open your heart to material, material podcast will come to you. <laughs> you should also subscribe uh, in the podcasting catching app and leave us feedback in the iTunes store and every other pad catching directory. But the thing about open your heart, blah, blah, blah. Yes, that also works too. You know, the, those people that stuck uh, stuck with us from episode zero, we know you're out there. Thank you. Thank you for staying with us. But um, yeah, I don't. I guess that, that's a different... Maybe that's a good place to end the show. That's a good place to end the show. We want to thank... <laughs> we had a pretty good run for Thanks for sticking episodes. with us. We're going to leave before we annoy you. We're going to... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> we want to thank everyone for listening. R- R- Randy. Randy. <laughs> Randy, if I combine both of your names, actually, the funny funny story. I have a coworker named Randy, and I called him Andy the other day, and I was like, "Oh God, no, that's not what I meant." So now I'm calling Andy Randy. There we go. You're just you're just trying to you're just trying to cajole the listeners into referring to us collectively as Randmeen. Randine. Yes. We're Randine. Randine. Our country. Our, 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 our young country album drops next Tuesday. Get your get your boots on. All right, Andy. Andy, where can people find you on the internet, on the line? Uh, if, you got, if you can spot my last name, I, I, I'm uh, Anatko on Twitter. I'm also at Anatko.com. And my stuff is on the Chicago Sun-Times site, but it's usually easier to find stuff through those links that I post on my own sites. And Russell, where can uh, people find an iOS uh, Pocket Cast update, status update? Ooh. If, if there was one, Yasmin, it would be coming to... At Pocketcast on Twitter, which actually isn't me. I don't even run that account. So Rusty Shelf on Twitter is where you can find me. But I really, I'm behind this Rand Mean thing. I want every single one of you to find Google, find the Google and type what is Rand Mean into it. And I want to search this Google trend <laughs> next week. And I actually we want should, to see a spike. What is Rand Mean? We should probably research that and find out if there's any responses to that. Ask your doctor about Rand Mean. Significant side effects to Discontinue use of Rand Mean if confusion lasts beyond four hours. <laughs> wait, wait, are we spelling M-I-N-E? I think Randine. I, I want to be a country music singer that's who's on the side of a bus somewhere. You can find me on at Yasmin Evian on Twitter. You can find us the the show at Material Podcast on Twitter. You can find us on the web at relay.fm forward slash material. You could also send us feedback, email at materialpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay material. Boom, 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 boom. Hey, you totally, you like made my closing into a rap, Russell. Did not ask. <laughs> you like that? I don't even did. have to like auto tune or anything. It just worked. You just, uh, I, so yeah, Yasmin says stuff that she doesn't mean. Words come out, and then Russell just puts them into some form of rap. Yeah, we'll just put the show in the show. Yeah, we'll just put the show in the show. Now you're going to take that one too. Oh, gosh. Now you're going to take that one too. Now you're going to take that one too. Shush. Shush. <laughs>
<laughs> you're, you're, you can... you're basically saying when you're well rested, you're usually good at suppressing your actual thoughts and feelings. <laughs> 